The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, look at this thing you have done. Look at this people that you have built, that you have called, that you have gathered. Father, I think about the joy that I feel sitting at a sitting at a kitchen table in my home. Looking at my family and, and my children, the affection I feel. the love that I feel, the, the desire to protect and provide. Father, and I know that this is just a shadow, a picture, just a semblance of who you are as Father and who we are as a family. And what you must feel in these moments is your people gather together desperate to hear from you knowing that from your lips come the very words of life, knowing that we need your words more than we need bread or water or air. Father, the joy it must bring to see your children gather together today like this. And Father, I do pray that you would keep our hearts fixed on you, Father, over the next hour or so, there will be all manner of distraction, opportunity for our minds to wander away. And Father, I pray that you would hold fast to our minds and our hearts and keep them pointed towards you. That we would feel the full weight of this word, that we would feel the joy that it's meant to bring us, that we would be transformed by it, that we would leave this place changed. Looking just that much more like your son. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time now. Pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Pray that you would bless your people in the hearing of it. Pray that you would guard my lips, allow me to only say those things which will build this people up and speak truth about you. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we move on this morning to the second verse of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as I pray you understand by now, these introductions to these biblical letters, they're more than a matter of insignificance. We've got to take great care that we don't just blow past them. You see, if we do this, we threaten not only to miss so much good and deep doctrinal teaching, we place ourselves in a position to greatly misunderstand everything that comes next. And so having identified himself, having identified his audience, Paul now offers to us a greeting. Now, this is much more than just a formality. Now, while a greeting was certainly customary and expected, what Paul is doing here is he's setting the tone for the entire letter. You might say that he's summing the entire thing up. Do you remember our introductory sermon to the book of Ephesians? What I sought to do there for you was to, in just one sentence, 
sum up the entirety of the letter. Now, it would not have been wrong to simply come to this verse right here. It's almost like the subject line to an email. Everything that follows, it flows out of this. This sums up for us the whole of what Paul has to say. A succinct statement of everything that follows. So what we come to this morning is the expression from Paul. Paul is expressing to us the heart of the letter. If we miss this, we put ourselves in a very shaky position to rightly understand all that comes next. And there's some difficult things that come next. There's some things that are going to stretch our mind. They're going to challenge our traditions. They're going to really force us to ask ourselves, is our theology biblical? Is our theology solid? Is our theology true? So we can't skip past this. We've got to dig in and we've got to ask God, would you reveal to us what it is that you're saying here in this greeting? So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. The reverence for reading of God's word, we return to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We'll be reading again this week, verses 1 and 2. This is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These words are familiar to you by now, aren't they? Not only because we've read them together on our last seven Lord's Day together, because this was the benediction for the whole of 2021, wasn't it? You remember that? At the close of every single worship service, I stood right there and I said to you, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've slightly reordered and adopted 2 Corinthians 13, 14 for this year. But over and over again for 52 Sundays, it was this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You were used to hearing it and surely some of you by that point had memorized it. Now you must know that there's great intention in this. I am seeking to indoctrinate you and your children. And I say this with all sincerity. You must realize that the world out there is pursuing. They are charging hard. They are constantly working and striving and spending billions of dollars to seek to deform your minds. Working hard to mold you into their image. Trying to beat you and train you into submission so that you will comply with their unholy demands. Surely you see this more clearly today than ever before. And so what are Christian people to do? We look around at the world. We know what's happening. We see it coming from a mile away. The enemy hasn't even tried to disguise his tactics any longer. He's marching up Main Street. And so what's the Christian person to do? Well, I'll tell you what most of them do. They gripe. And they complain. And they go on Facebook and they share posts and they talk about how dark the world out there is. How the whole world is going to hell. And then we warn our children about drugs and strangers and music with bad words in it. And our, our children, they figure out pretty quickly all the things that we hate. They know all the things that we despise. But dear children, don't you understand that following Christ is about so much more than just identifying and avoiding bad things? You don't have to be a child of God to be disturbed by transgenderism. You don't have to be born again by the Spirit to have your heart ripped out by the idea that little children are being trafficked for sex. But it's only the Christian. It is only those who have been born again. It is only those who sit under the word of God, by the spirit of God, who can rightly diagnose and provide an answer for any of these things. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Laws and elections and Supreme Court justices and all of those things are fine and good, but darkness comes from the hearts of men. Do you remember when the world got so dark that God decided he was going to flood it? 
He was going to destroy all men except for this one remnant, this one small family. What did he say? Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin comes from the darkened hearts of men. There is no law. There is no president. There is nothing in all creation that can turn the hearts of men. There's nothing this world has to offer, not the greatest wisdom, not the greatest programs that are going to capture the hearts of men and return them to God. So please listen to me. We must do everything that we can to restrain evil men. The word of God calls for capital punishment upon those who would take the life of an innocent person. Fathers, you must do everything in you to protect your families. I'm talking about physically if necessary. You must fight and you must be willing to die to protect your children. Mothers, you must watch them like a hawk. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? People must earn the right to have access to and influence over your children. So fathers, we fight, and mothers, we guard, and we work together to protect our precious children, to put boundaries around our home. We must not fail to take these things seriously, but you must realize that you can lock your family in your house. You can take your precious baby you can put her in her room and cut off all access to the outside world. No internet, no cell phone, no friends, and she will find herself trapped there with the darkness of her own heart. Because, dear friends, the problem is not out there. The problem is here. The problem is here. And it's only God who transforms hearts. It's only God who changes affections. It's only God who calls men out of darkness and into his marvelous light. By the working of his spirit and the power of his word, it is only God that can do this. It is only God that can identify the only true answer to the real problem. Not just for our children, but for us. It is this, the sufficient word of God. All that we need to know for his glory, for our salvation, for our life, for our holiness, it is all found right here. And you must realize that the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from, comes from, or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We do not demand or control the Spirit of God, but we must, we can and we must pour the Word of God into the hearts of our families. We prepare the logs, we carefully lay out the kindling, and then we pray for fire from heaven. You may do all these things, you may protect your family physically. You may guard their friendships. You may guard their little eyes and their little ears. You may pour this word into them with everything that you have, and I can offer you no guarantee that your children will be saved. This is the work of God. He must send the fire. It must be the coming of his spirit. And I pray you understand that it's not until you grasp this that you will truly learn what it means to pray in absolute and utter dependence. Dear God, please save them. Isn't that what we pray on Wednesday nights? Dear God, please save our children. This doesn't absolve us of our responsibility. Quite the opposite. We work harder than all the rest. We do everything we can to get this word into the hearts and minds of our little children. But at the end of it, we throw up our hands and we say, Dear God, if you don't show up, there will be no life. But I promise you, you don't want it any other way. Listen to me, you don't want the keys to your child's salvation. You want God to be sovereign in this. I promise. And when I come to God's word and I look and I realize that at the end of this life, when we stand before him, with our eyes no longer clouded by sin, our hearts no longer shielded by selfishness, we will stand before him all that day, on that day, and we will realize just how good he has done even if the good he has done was not the good we would have chosen. And so for now, we pray. We pray and we plead and we wear, wear calluses on our knees from constantly crying out to him hour after hour, day after night. Dear God, please save them. For your glory, would you please save them? You look to your children, even when you think your children are good, 
Even when you see no signs of external evil, you still fall on your knees and you cry out to God and you say, dear God, please save them. All the while pouring this word into them. It's the word, it's the word, it's the word. When we lie down, when we get up, when we sit in our home, when we walk along the way, we've got nothing but the word of God. No, unless God provides the fire, there will be no life. But dear children, this is your only hope. I cannot guarantee that God will save your children, but I guarantee you that the world cannot. I guarantee you they have nothing to offer. At the very best, all they can do is treat the symptoms and give you a false sense of assurance. At the worst, they will push them deeper into the darkness. Your only hope in this, for yourself, for your children, for the entirety of your home, your only hope is this, the word of God under the spirit of God bringing life that only God can give. And so yes, I am seeking to indoctrinate you, to indoctrinate myself, to indoctrinate your children. The first time I used that word, some people got very uncomfortable. I didn't even see a flinch in here today. That says something. That says something about you. I will pour this word into the hearts of your little children any way that I can. Because I understand that a little six-year-old, they may not understand a single word that I say for the next hour. But if they could only remember this, if they could only remember for 52 straight Sundays that when we finally get to stand up to go home, Pastor Josh, who lives here and gives me candy, he stands right there, and what does he say? Grace to you and peace. If they could only remember this, what could God do with this? Pastor Josh, who loves me, who only wants to talk about God, he says to me, every time I leave this place, grace to you and peace. Dear God, would you save a soul with that? I'm going back to that. That's our benediction for now on. I may never change. Grace to you and peace and doxology till I die. Got to be careful saying things like that, don't I? This is the heart of the gospel. Grace to you and peace. What man most desperately needs to know. What man most desperately needs in his life more than health, more than sitting still in school, more than watching his language, more than giving up drinking, more than anything else, grace and peace. This is my prayer to you. Over you, not to you. This is what Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus as well, not just the church in Ephesus, but all the churches. Continue, this was his standard greeting. You realize this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Christ Jesus. That word grace, we find it 155, by my count, I find it 155 times in the New Testament. Right at 100 of those come from the lips of Paul. Grace, such a glorious word, and it is so woefully misunderstood. It fills our sermons, it fills our songs, it it permeates our talk, but for so many people, it just carries with it this vague sense of God's kindness. We like the word. It makes us feel happy when we hear people talk about it, but what does it mean? What is the grace of God? Now, for many of you, I would imagine, if I went around this room, seasoned Christians as you are, men who love the word of God, have studied the word of God, who have have sat under good, solid teachers, I would imagine that if I were to go around this room and I were to ask you, what do you think of when you hear the word grace? The first thing to come to mind would probably be unmerited favor. That's a very good place to start. I like that. It's a proper place for our mind to go. Nothing nothing at all wrong with beginning there. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Unmerited meaning completely unwarranted, undeserved. You'll never understand the grace of God if we don't get right at this point. You see, many men, they like to talk about the unmerited favor of God, but they forget what it means to be unmerited, undeserved, unearned. Man has earned nothing with God. God owes man nothing, nothing at all. The whole of humanity. Go read Romans 5. In Adam, we all rejected God. His rule, his reign, his goodness, his promises. In Adam, we have all rejected God. He presented the man with a choice. Life or death, blessing or curse. And there is a representative of all mankind. This man chose death and curse. He listened to the lies of the enemy and he doubted the goodness of God. That's what it comes down to. God, I doubt that you have what is best for me. 
I doubt your promises. I doubt your goodness. Therefore, I reject what you have said. He chose death and curse, not just for himself, but for the whole of mankind. Scripture tells us explicitly that through Adam came sin and guilt and death upon all men. We must not get it twisted. We've added plenty of sin to that on our own. In our fallen nature, we have just piled sin upon sin upon sin. And yet that singular sin of that first man, that representative Adam, it was enough to render all men guilty before God, deserving of nothing. God owing us nothing but death and condemnation. And yet he didn't destroy them, did he? You see, it would have been right and it would have been good. It would have been just for God to simply put to death Adam and Eve and consign them to hell forever, to just be done with it. Throw them into the deepest pits of hell that had been designed, created for Satan and his demons and to leave them there for all eternity. And you must realize then that if this is right and just and good, that anything short of this is grace. Anything short of death and hell is grace. Undeserved, unmerited, an absolute gift of God. And yet what we find from God is from that day until this, he's continued to pour this grace into the world. Not just the lives of believers, but the whole of humanity. We might call this common grace or the benevolence of God. This is God's goodness towards even those creatures who spit in his face. Even those creatures who will never turn from their sin and be saved. Even those creatures who will be condemned in their sin at their dying breath. We know that even those, they receive these gifts from God every new day. Every breath of fresh air, every hug from a loved one, rain for your crops, food for your stomach, healing from your illness, money to pay the bills, absolutely everything that is short of an ending punishment in hell, it is all grace. God's good gifts given to men who have rejected him, who have rebelled against him, who have spurned his glory. It's God's goodness filling all of creation. Now God expressly tells us what his purposes are in this. We read about this in Romans 2 beginning in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? That is God. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. As Paul would tell the people of Lystra in Acts 14, God had provided man with a testimony, with a witness about himself. You see, to every man, at every place, in every age, God has revealed himself in this way, not just in the beauty and power of his creation, not just in his moral law written upon our hearts, but in his good hand reaching out to give gifts, gifts of life, gifts of sustenance. All the good gifts that we enjoy in this world, all of these things are acts of God's common grace. So that in the rains from heaven, in the crop in their seasons, God is calling men to turn from their rebellion and worship him. And yet Paul continues on in that verse. Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your hardened and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's ju- righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, God's goodness, his condescending and beneficent love, the goodness that he pours out upon the whole of mankind, in return, man has received this. They've received his goodness, they've enjoyed his gifts, they have consumed his goods, and they've rejected him. And as a result of this, They've stored up wrath for themselves. Even those who receive the law, think about the Jewish people, all the blessings, all the benefits that God had given to them, the grace and the goodness of the law and the prophets and the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, even greater revelations of who God was, even greater indications of what his nature was like. These things were meant to lead these people to true, faithful repentance. And yet they remained hardened and impenitent. Therefore, this goodness of God, God's good gifts in their life, the food that they ate, the hugs from a loved one, the rain from their crops, every good gift that God gave them in this life, it only served to heap greater wrath and judgment upon them in that final day. I hope they enjoyed whatever they received because the goodness you receive in this life, it is all you shall have. In fact, it will be crying out against you as a witness in the final days because the God of the universe says, I reached out my hand and I gave to you. Even in your rebellion, even in your sin, even as you cursed my name and fled from my rule, still I provided, still I cared, still I gave you everything that you needed for life in this world and you rejected it all. You received the gift and you rejected the giver. We come to realize that God's kindness towards men like this will not endure forever. 
Now, you people, you understand this. I've not said anything to you in this introduction that doesn't that you're not aware of. But we must not take for granted that the rest of the world understands this. We cannot take for granted that the rest of the world recognizes that God's kindness towards sinful men will not continue forever. You see, you'll hear men say things like, if God is good, then he must always bless men. If God is infinitely good, if he's good in the very essence of who he is, if it's in his nature to be good, then he cannot strike and punish and condemn. In short, the fallen world thinks that God's goodness has limited his right to justice. But we know better than this. We know that God is not only good and loving and merciful and gracious, we know that he is just and righteous and holy. We know that a good God must defend the greatest thing in all the universe, and there is nothing greater than the name of this good God. We know that God must defend his name, that he cannot allow men to despise him, to reject his glory forever. That sin must be punished, and this is good. The very definition of good. You see, good isn't some external standard to God. Are you tired of hearing me say that by now? I say that every time we come to one of these. Love, not an external standard. external standard to God holiness not an external standard to God justice righteousness truth goodness all of these things are are uh, defined only with regard to their relationship to God who is himself good do you understand this a thing is only good as far as it comports with who God reveals himself to be that is good and anything that rejects that goodness Anything that falls short of that goodness, anything that takes something else that might be good and places it above that which is best is sin and must be treated as such. Do you understand? And so, if God's name is the highest and the greatest and the most glorious thing in all the universe, then we come to recognize that man who has rejected that glory, that's the essence of sin, falling short of the glory of God, is taking the lesser things and saying, I prefer those to the greatest good in all the universe. You people know this by now. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir more than ever before this morning. This is a rehash of all we've said over the last three years. What has God called you to do? Trade up. Stop settling. Look to the greatest thing in all the universe and say, I value that. What he's saying is, start appraising rightly. So if the very essence of sin is to look at that which is best and greatest and highest and say, well, I, I prefer the trash, And dear friends, it is very much good for God to punish that. Because of our union with Adam and our sinful nature and all the outworkings of that, we deserve his punishment. We have shown disdain for the glory of God. So therefore, the question is not, how can a good God pour his wrath out upon sinful men? The question is, how can a good God be gracious to any man ever? Those of you that have watched the Chronicles of Narnia or read the Chronicles of Narnia books, there, there are certain scenes that stick with you and, and that, that scene where the white witch shows up and demands the life of Edmund. If you hadn't read it, then whatever, just zone out for about 30 seconds. But when this boy who has sinned, he has sinned against the law. And he's there with Aslan, he's there with the lion, he's there with the one he has offended. And the white witch shows up and she says, the law demands that that boy is mine. Dear friends, do you realize that all that is, all that is proper and orderly in this universe demands your death? It demands your condemnation? And we'll get to the rest of the story when the lion comes out and says, he's offended me, not some external law. And I have the right to deal with this as I see fit. But do you understand that all that is good and right demands that you die and go to hell? You wonder how I can say this with a smile because I know the rest of the story. But you've got to get this. You will never find joy. You will never love grace. If you don't understand this. It's not how can a good God destroy men. It's how can a good God not destroy them all. How can he still be just and pour his grace into the lives of any? So again, I say we must get this right. 
Because so much of what I see in the faulty doctrine of men with regards to the grace, the, the, the nature and the outworking of God's grace, it falls apart at this place right here. Because everybody, everybody confesses that Romans 6.23 is right. But do we really believe? Within our soul, do we actually believe that our wages have earned, I mean, our sin has earned death? I don't think that we do. But see, the problem isn't just that we have a faulty anthropology, that we have a faulty doctrine of sin. It's because our, our view of God and his glory is too small. That's where it begins. What do I pray for you after we read each week, most weeks? God, show me yourself. Show me myself. I could pause right there and say, God, show me yourself. Show me myself and cause me to weep. Show me the vastness of your glory. What most men need is not to look in the mirror and talk, think about what a wretch they are. That's what some people walk away from here with, this, this idea that all you do is you tell us how sorry we are. I'm trying to show you how big God is. If you see the power and the beauty and the worth of God, you get real small real quick. You can be the most righteous man in all the earth and you end up with your hand over your mouth saying, I am undone. So it's not until we see God as he is that we can see ourselves as we are. And then all of a sudden, this word grace becomes the sweetest thing in all the universe. I hated the way we used to share the gospel. We would show up to people's house and we would act like they knew all of that. Like they knew that God was holy and mighty and just and they deserved condemnation. And they knew that they were sinners and that his wrath was upon them. And then we showed up and we said, hey, we've got the answer to all your problems. It's the grace of Christ. They said, we have no problems. We're selling them the solution to something they didn't know existed. So we start here. It's only then that grace is the sweetest word you've ever heard. How few people can actually sing of amazing grace. It's not amazing to you. Not if you don't get this. So grace, that was Paul's hope for these people. Favor beyond anything they could ever deserve and not merely this common grace. Not, not merely this benevolence that God has poured out almost indiscriminately over all creation. You see, that, that grace, God pours it into the lives of people and oftentimes you'll find is that the greater the heathen, sometimes the, the greater the common grace they seem to receive. The wealth and the health and the fame, and the, the popularity, and all the things that they chase after. We must hold fast to realizing they'll answer for that. But that's not what Paul's wishing upon his people here. More than rain for their crops and healing for their children, not merely the universal goodness of God that man can resist. That grace is a grace that man can resist. Thank you for the goodies, God. I have no further use of you. I'll call you back when I need you. Or perhaps somehow believing that this is grace they've manufactured in themselves because they believe in themselves, because they've worked harder than all the rest. It's not this resistible grace, this common grace, this grace which for many will only serve to bring greater judgment upon them, but something more. You see, part of the way that I deal with words like grace whenever I do my Bible studies is I don't use a paper concordance or a hardback concordance any longer. I use Bible software, but I'll, I'll click on that word, grace, and I'll just go through and I'll look. How is this word used over and over and over again? It took me a while to read through a 100 different uses by Paul of this word grace. But as you read through the word grace, you can't help but come to the conclusion that there's something more. Something more than just the general goodness of God in the lives of all mankind. Many men never move beyond that, you see. They may recognize that God owes man nothing, they may recognize that, that God should give us nothing but death and condemnation. And so they recognize that all good things come from God. And so these are the minutes you'll see, and they stand up at the end of a football game, and they say, well, I just thank God for his grace in my life. They see God's grace as nothing more than giving us the gifts we want right now. You see, what happens is they embrace a Jesus Christ who is just a means to those ends that they always wanted. They've just changed teams. They've just changed methods. They're still chasing after the same things. But when you read through Paul's letters, you can't help but come to some different conclusion that there's a different kind of grace, something universal, not universal, excuse me, not common, not old, something that cannot be demanded, something that God pours into the lives of some men. 
that God has chosen to manifest his goodness, his special and saving and holy love in ways that is completely and radically different from all the rest of the world. Listen to Paul's letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You've got Paul speaking of the grace of God in prison. You've got Paul speaking of the grace of God to people as he calls them to suffer. He's saying the grace of God calls you to stand here. The grace of God causes you to suffer like this, but there's a way in which you suffer. There's a way in which you endure. There's a way in which you see him working, even in this. He's talking about a God who is called, a God who is saved, a God who has chosen and set apart these people unto himself. Go back to the saints. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to the saints. And he's saying it's by God's grace that you have become a saint. It's by God's grace that he has chosen you, placed his love upon you, set you apart as holy unto himself. And he says, not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This expression of God's goodness, this undeserved gift, this way in which he saves men, it's all in accordance with his purpose and his grace. Isn't that what we read when we get to the second chapter of Ephesians? It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. By grace that you have been saved. What part of salvation? All of it. All of it. His choosing you. His setting you apart as a saint, as a holy one, as a one who will be blameless before him. Setting you apart to adoption to himself. The forgiveness, the faith by which you receive that forgiveness, the endurance, the royal inheritance, all of it, the grace of God. What part of my salvation do I chalk up to the grace of God? All of it. Do you understand? This is the grace that he's speaking about. And he says that this is grace that God has given them before the ages began. You see, God didn't look within time and say, it is, I see what you're doing now. I see the bend of your heart. I see the direction of your life. And you will be the one that will be the recipient of my grace. It's not as if we're performing and tap dancing and auditioning for the grace of God. He says before the foundation of the world, before the ages began, it was then that this grace was given to you in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. It was already yours before you existed. Before the world existed, this grace was yours. And then, at the appointed time, God burst forth into your life with that grace. You see, you're already surrounded by all the goodness of God, all the witness to who he was. You had access to all the evidence, the might and the power and the wonder. For most of you in this room, you had access to the word of God, the gospel. You knew these words. How many of you grew up in the church able to recite the gospel, tell people the words, preach sermons about who he was, sing all the songs, offer all the prayers, and yet in the end, this would have only served to condemn you in the end. These things would have only served to bring greater wrath upon you in the end. It would have amounted to nothing. But then at the proper time, the grace of God, that grace which had been yours from all eternity past, it came flooding into your life and turned everything upside down. Do you see? The grace of God is not just some sentimental feeling. It's not just some warm fuzzy that God has about you in his heart. It isn't a love that remains within himself. The grace of God acts. The grace of God does things. The grace of God isn't just his disposition towards us. It's the way that disposition works itself out in our life. It's the power that completely transforms everything about your existence. You see, I might be disposed to love you. I might have all the affection in the world towards you. I may love you more than anything else. And I may desire to do good for you. But it might not happen. I might just let you down. I might forget. I might become selfish. I might not have the resources to take the action necessary in order to bless you in the way that I desire. But this is never the case with God. This holy love, this saving love, it is an efficacious grace that God pours into your life. There's nothing that God desires to do that does not come to pass, working all things according to the counsel of his will. It's the will of God that brings all things to pass. And so we don't have some God that sits up in heaven and he says, if only my arms were longer, I could accomplish something. If only I had more power, I could accomplish my will in their lives. If only they would cooperate with me, then these things would come to pass. No, by grace, 
The same grace that he chose you by before the foundation of the world caused you to be holy and blameless before him. Those who didn't deserve it, the rebels, the scoundrels, those who despised everything about him, he set us apart and holy unto himself, and then he reaches into our life, and that grace transformed us. That's exactly what we see in Ephesians 2. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That's what we saw earlier, right? The whole of mankind living in rebellion to God, dead in their sin, following the prince of the power of the air, the desires. Now, we weren't... No one was forcing us down this path. These were the desires of our heart and our flesh and our mind, doing exactly what we desired to do, living in opposition to God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Dear children, the grace of God makes men alive. It is by grace that you have been saved. Remember now, Paul's speaking to the saints. He's speaking to those who he will tell us later have been predestined from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world, chosen to be holy unto him. That's the grounding. That's the root of it all, if you'd like. That God in eternity past granted us this grace in Christ Jesus. And yet we continued on from the whole of our life up until that glorious moment. We continued on as rebels, children of wrath, sons of disobedience and yet that grace was always ours it was always guaranteed to us it was always guaranteed to come to pass that this thing would happen even as we were dead in our sins and long before we were born because of this grace that had always been ours in grace he sends his son he sends his son to purchase our salvation in grace his son takes our sin upon himself and he dies in our stead as an act of grace his son raises from the dead us joined with him he raises from the dead to prove his victory in all this. And at the proper time to make sure that all of this comes to pass, by grace he reaches into your chest, he gives you a new heart, and he calls you to faith. It's the grace of God, the power of God to transform lives and to bring his saints into true holiness, true communion with him, eternal life and glory. But Paul will say that Christ says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Dear friends, grace is the power of God working in your life, even in the middle of your weakness and your frailty and your sin and your rebellion. And you can't read through the letters of Paul and not come to the conclusion that the grace of God always hits its mark. Don't miss the beauty of this. He didn't just say grace, did he? He said grace to you. You understand that grace has a target and a purpose and an aim? The power of God will reach its appointed end every time. Grace to you. This grace had a target. It had a point. It had an aim. It had an end point. That grace was going to fall on certain men. These are the men that Paul wrote to. How many weeks did we spend talking about to whom is Paul writing? Who can claim these promises? Who can believe that what Paul is saying is true about them? It's the saints. It are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, this grace is to you, not to the rest of the world. You see, that's the nature of grace. That's the nature of free gifts, and that's where the world gets it wrong. So many within the church get it wrong. If you give this grace to him, you must give it to him. No, dear friends, that's not grace. I've, sp I've spoken to so many men that they're studying through their Old Testaments and they get to the stories of Joshua leading the armies of Israel in and they're just slaughtering entire nations and it wrecks them. It wrecks them. Makes them doubt the goodness of God. Makes them wonder what they've been reading their whole life. Makes them doubt their own theology. And I've got to remind them, dear friend, just because the God of the universe chose not to destroy the Israelites did not mean he could not destroy all the rest of the Canaanites. Not only, did he not, have the, not only did he have the right, but it was good. By definition, it was good and just and righteous and holy. God gives mercy to whom he will give mercy. He pours his grace into the lives of those whom he has chosen. 
When we get to heaven, we will recognize just how good he has done. But for today, we do not dare yell at the heavens and declare, God, if you give to one, you must give to all. We do not demand that he directs his grace in the directions that we see fit. And what we find as we read through Paul's letters, what we find as we read through that letter there and letter to Timothy there is that this grace is not merely a thing that brings man to the moment of salvation. It's not merely a thing that leads man to conversion and to justification before God. It's a thing that strengthens and sustains men all the days of their life. You don't get a dose of grace, dear friends. You get God's grace saturating the whole of your life, strengthening you in the middle of your suffering. That seems to be the heart of Paul's writing. As as we read through this letter to the Ephesians, we're going to hear Paul talking about the grace of God that has chosen him, that has called him, that has set him apart, expressly for the purpose of taking that grace and sharing it with the saints. You come to recognize that Paul perhaps believes that this letter in and of itself is an act of God's grace. That God is strengthening the saints. He is causing them to endure. He is leading them into glory by the very words that he speaks to this man called Paul. But we begin to recognize that this grace of God is not just a thing in eternity past that sets men apart unto God, that calls them saints. It's not just a thing that comes breaking in at the proper time to call you to saving faith. It's a thing that calls you to endure all the way to glory. That's what we read here in 2 Thessalonians 1. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the grace of God. This is the end, the aim, the ultimate aim. I said that it had a target. I said that it had an aim. I said that the grace of God was not just like we're going through a, uh, going through a baseball parade and just randomly throwing candy out in the audience to see who can catch it. God is much more a sniper than that. His grace has a target. It has an aim. It will fall upon the men that he has chosen. It will accomplish his goal. But ultimately, the goal at the back end of all of this is his own glory. The glorification of his name. It's the praise of his name. It's a celebration and the worship of his goodness. So as we read through Paul's letters, as we read through just this letter of the Ephesians, I would ask you to take note and ask yourself, is that not the grace that Paul's talking about? The grace that originates in eternity past with God choosing and setting apart and declaring a people to be holy unto himself. A grace, grace which comes in breaking into time at the appointed time and calls men into saving faith. Leads them to being right with God, joining them with Christ Jesus as sons of God and then carries them forward, endures them to the very end. Ask yourself, is that not the grace that you see God speaking of through Paul in this letter? But he didn't stop there, did he? He didn't just stop with grace. He says grace to you and peace. I told you this was the very heart of the gospel. I pray you didn't think that was some original thought to me. I I think I've said this before, so no damage in saying it again. You need to hear it. There is not a single thing that I will say from this pulpit that's worth hearing that's going to be completely new to me going to be some original brand new thought I do the work of locking myself in my office and I wrestle and I work I I mean I work guys I spend every moment I can trying to wrestle and be shaped and molded and, and, and try to understand and having God conform my mind to his thoughts to understand everything that this word says. And then I come up out of that study and I go and I look at what other good and faithful men have said about this. And guess what? If what I've come to is not the conclusion that any of them have come to, we got problems. I go right back. You ever find yourself sitting under a pastor that's got a bunch of brand new thoughts on the scriptures? You better run. And so I found myself this week reading the words of good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as he sums it up like this. No two words are more important in the whole of the faith than these, grace and peace. Man, I wish I could speak like him. Who's hearing his voice right now in your head? Gosh. God gives some people the pipes. <laughs> Just the... No two words are more important in the whole of the faith than these, grace and peace. Grace is the beginning of our faith, and peace is the end. Grace is the fountain, the spring, the source. It is that per- 
particular place in the mountain from which the mighty river you see rolling into the sea starts its race. Without it, there would be nothing. Grace is the origin and the source and the fount of everything in the Christian life. But what does a Christian life mean? What is a Christian life meant to produce? The answer is peace. Dear friends, it's peace. That's what man needs. You need peace. That's the end of God's grace in your life. That's where he is leading you. It's the peace. Remember, what did we say was man's position before God? Sinful rebel. Deserving of nothing but condemnation. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath. The state of natural man, he's an enemy of God. Now, most people won't accept it. It's a very hard thing to reconcile, I understand. And perhaps it's the good gifts of God that have led men to be so confused. You see, we don't treat our enemies like that, do we? We don't lavish our enemy with gifts from the, end, from the bounty of our endless resources. We don't feed our enemies. We don't house our enemies. We don't heal our enemies. We don't give our enemies air within their lungs to curse our name. But that's exactly what God does. He sustains them, and he heals them, and he provides for them. And so all the while, they must think, surely I'm right with God, or surely he can't get to me. And even those that don't curse his name like this, even those that don't outwardly reject him, they go around thinking that all must surely be well. Look at the way life is looking. Look at my bank account. Look at my family. Look at my health. If they do give any thoughts to God, they must think that surely God is pleased with them, or at the very least, he's neutral. And dear children, you must know that the church is very much to blame, with, blame for this. We're so very hesitant to speak in these biblical terms because it's offensive. It turns men away. So Christians have been trained to speak. You only speak about the love and the mercy and the goodness of God, the grace of God and the lives of all men. Dear children, don't you understand how this is perhaps the greatest gift we've ever given the enemy? The people of God speaking to the enemies of God as if they're right with God. Do you understand the treason that this is? Now, I'm not saying that you run around and shout at your lost neighbor all the time. I don't know if that needs to be, you know, you, you, you call the people here, hey, man of God, hey, brother of God, and then you get out in the world and the lady that checks your groceries at Arlen, you say, hey, enemy of God. Number one, because you may not know. We don't get to make that declaration. We don't get to speak of it as, it's, as if it's universal, that's for sure. But we don't know what God's doing with a man. We don't know where God's leading them. We don't know where they are at this particular moment. And I need to remind you, I think, perhaps, I said that they're enemies of God, not enemies of you. But Jesus speaks, or excuse me, James speaks in pretty clear language. Jesus spoke in pretty clear language too, but James says in James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God in their natural state. This is talking about men that are cursing God. This is talking about men that are friends with the world, men who love the things of the world, men who seek friendship and adoration and approval from the world. You make yourself an enemy with God. You started it. You've rejected God. You made yourself a friend with God. It's a two-way street. But you've set yourself in opposition to God. Romans 8, 7 to 8 says this, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, they reject the rule, they reject the reign, they reject the worship, they reject the law, they reject all things that come from God. Indeed, they cannot submit. And we begin to realize that there is no in-between. There is no neutral. Nobody gets to be Switzerland in this deal. You're either a child of God, a follower of Christ, blessed and under the grace of God for all eternity, or you're an enemy. You're a son of the devil doing the will of your father. This is natural man in his fallen state. He's at war with God. And yet, because he continues to provide for them, they march on through this earth fully expecting that they're going to get to the other side of this and they're going to have nothing but more of what they received in this world. 
that surely God must continue to provide for them and care for them and be kind to them in all eternity. And what we must remind them is more importantly than what you think about God is what he thinks about you. Sadly, most men don't fear this. Most men have no fear of the day of judgment. They don't tremble at the thought of the omnipotent, all-knowing, the infinitely powerful God of the universe standing before them in judgment in the final day. They have, no, they have no fear of the thought of what this world will look like in the day when he returns. Those that do have some sense of fear, they simply quiet their consciences. They shush themselves to sleep at night. They try to fill their lives with all manner of entertainment and, 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 and women and drugs and whatever else. Good things, religion. They fill their lives with whatever they can to quiet their conscience, to shush themselves asleep, to say there is peace, there is peace, surely there is peace. But the God of the universe says no. He says no. What you need most desperately is peace with me. And so then you begin to see what's so very damning about pastors and preachers and teachers and Christians that will not teach the full counsel of God's word. Is there anything more heartless than walking with a condemned man as he heads towards the electric chair than to tell him, hey, listen, there's nothing waiting for you on the other side of that door except more goodness. You see, your problem, my friend, is that you don't realize just how loved you are. You don't realize how blessed you are. We convince men that their last meal is actually just a foretaste of greater things to come. Is there anything more heartless than this? Man needs peace with God. And because God is the one who has been offended, this peace must originate with him. Only he has the right, only he has the ability to do what needs to be done to bring peace. And see, I've got to speed up here. But we read in Romans 5. 5 verse 10, that while we were enemies, it was while we were still enemies that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God didn't wait for us to wave the right white flag. He didn't wait for us to send over some sort, sort of a treaty, some sort of a peace agreement. That yet while we were still sinners, God did the very thing that needed to be done to bring peace between us and him. I wonder how many of you in this room lack this peace. I wonder how many of you in this room have bought the lies of the world that what you need for peace is to get right with yourself. You just need to realize how special you are. Forgive yourself, accept yourself, learn to love yourself. Dear children, this is a lie straight from the pit of hell. You will never have peace with yourself until you have peace with God, and God has made the only way for us to have peace with him. Do you ever wonder why you look around at the world and there are more drugs and more psychologists and more programs and more organizations and more self-help books and more online courses than ever in the history of the world, and yet there's less peace than ever before? anxiety and fear and depression and all these things they skyrocket day after day after day because man's trying to make peace with himself he's trying to bring peace in his home without first finding peace with God it's what we need is peace with God and sadly what happens is because we don't have this peace in and of ourselves, this lack of peace spills off on everybody all around us all of our relationships are marred by this lack of peace we wonder why our marriages are falling apart we wonder why we can't get along with our coworkers. We wonder why we fight and bicker just like the rest of the world. You don't have peace with God, you'll never have peace with man. Never any kind of true and lasting peace. You may have a truce for a while. I'm amazed by how many professing Christians I've met that cannot hold on to one decent relationship to save their life. They can't muster anything that even resembles peace with anyone that they call brother and sister for more than a season. But eventually... The peace doesn't last. And then you sit down and you begin to talk with them and what you recognize is they're not at war with their neighbor. They're still at war with God. And so we read again in Ephesians 2 that God offers us this peace, not just peace with himself, but peace with others. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Dear friends, this is the peace that God offers, that he has broke down the dividing wall. He has, he has eliminated the hostility. He has done everything that needs to happen in order to create peace between us and him first. Do you remember what I told you the problem was? What was the dividing wall? What was the thing that was between us and God? What was the thing that separated us from him? What was the thing that created the problem of him blessing us at any level? It was our sin. It was our guilt. It was our rebellion against him. And how did he deal with this? In the death of his son. He takes all of that, the sin and the guilt, the wrath that he has for us, and he pours it all out upon his son. 
Giving his son is a propitiation. That's the fancy word we read in Romans 3.25. We recognize that there's two pieces to this puzzle. I'll give you two. $5 words, $10 words. Expiation. It means that God has taken our guilt, he has taken our sin, and he has removed it from us. X means out of. That's part one. We need to be freed of our guilt. We need to be freed of our sin. We need the stain of all of that removed from us. But there's still another problem remaining, and that is God's mad. That makes people very uncomfortable. The idea that we have to come to God. We have to assuage his, his wrath. We have to satisfy his wrath. And yet that's exactly what Scripture says. You can remove all the guilt in the world. You can remove all the sin in the world. You've still got to deal with the wrath of God. And that's exactly what we saw in his son. He takes his guilt, takes our sin and our guilt, places it upon his son and the wrath too. He pours out that wrath upon his son to spare us. So therefore there is nothing to come between us and God that now he may offer us peace through his son, Jesus Christ. Now when man thinks about peace, we think about, typically we think about little more than a ceasefire, right? You watch this war that's going on in the Ukraine between Russia. Look, is there ever going to be anything that's really peace between those people? The best you can hope for is a ceasefire. Some kind of a stand down, right? Well, sadly, that way of thinking has crept into so much of my relationship with God. I, I know that I can come to him with confidence and that there is no longer any condemnation there for me, that he does not have any wrath pent up for me, that his, he has got nothing but blessing and goodness for me, and yet running under the surface, there is this, this feeling that surely some, some enmity must still be there. If I'm being honest with you, sometimes I feel like God just tolerates me. And with fairness, I barely tolerate me, right? But you, but you have this feeling as though, you know, yeah, God has not yet destroyed me, and no, God is not giving me the things that I deserve, but at the end of the day, he's got to swallow really hard in order to entertain me. It's really difficult. God's got to muster up all the, all the grace he has in order to entertain my prayers, in order to give me any good thing, and yet he didn't stop there, did he? He said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all wrapped up in Christ. We've established that. But dear friends, we have so, I think we've heard this word for so long, you've, you, you've lost sight of the, the wonder at it all. The God of the universe allows you to call him Father. That was so completely foreign to the Jewish mindset. It's a nation, they believed, yeah, we can call God Father, but the idea that a man can look at God and call him his Father, and he would call you his Son. One of my great fears as a father is that I'm going to distort this image for my daughters. Many of you have had this image distorted for you. Because you had a father that looked nothing like God. But you need to know that this God who calls you son, who calls you daughter, who tells you to call him father, he delights in singing over you. He is overjoyed at doing you good. He loves nothing more than when you come rushing into his presence, begging for his grace. I think I've told you before, I've already talked about kids and their candy. And If you're a visitor here, I'm not creepy. <laughs> the, other, the other people can attest to this. I'm not creepy, man. But I do like kids more than adults. And I, and, and I genuinely feel that an important part of who I am meant to be is, is someone that these children can look to as a friend. Is a, is a good guy, someone who loves them, is someone who welcomes them. And one of the greatest joys, one of the things that does me more good than almost anything else in all the world is when I'm sitting in my office with my door shut and I'm praying or I'm studying or I'm reading and that door flings open without a knock and here come a couple of kids. Because you know what that tells me? That they don't fear me. They know I've got nothing but good for them. They know that I love them, and their daddy or mommy will come. Hey, you got to knock, man. You got to knock. Yeah, probably you should knock, but man. Dear friends, could we approach God like that? 
Can we look to the gulf that exists between what we deserve, recognizing that we were enemies? We were rebels. We rejected him and we spit in his face. And yet from eternity past, he chose you. He set you apart. He called you a saint. And then to guarantee that this thing happens, he came reaching into your heart at the proper time and he turned your heart towards him so that he could give you a love for himself. And he says, I'm not going to just leave you there then to work this out. I'm going to walk you throughout all your life in this grace to make sure that you reach the appointed end, that you come to glory. I'm going to sustain you in the middle of your suffering. I'm going to continue to sing over you and to delight over you, even in the middle of your suffering. I'm going to walk you through your sin. I'm going to use your sin for your good. I'm going to look to you men that called me enemy. I'm going to look to you men that rejected my reign. I'm going to look to you men that received my gifts and spit in my face. And at the end of this thing, I will tell you, you can call me father. Would you run to him like this? Would you come running joyfully and confidently into his presence? If that's not your experience, then I've got the answer. Scripture says that one of the ways we can know that we are his is that his spirit is within us and we cry out to him, Abba, Father. And I know so many people, they can become then so inwardly focused, trying to, trying to conjure up some feelings, trying to conjure up some emotions, trying to conjure up some confidence that God truly is their father. Dear friends, the answer is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. You look there and say, he did not spare his son. He did not spare his son. He laid down the life of his son so that he could treat you as a son. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that we can call you Father. We do not take this lightly. The forgiveness, the grace, the mercy that you have given us, we know that it cost you dearly. And yet, Father, you welcome us into this place as your children. You welcome our prayers. You entertain our, our praise. And, Father, you delight in singing over us. And so we, we, we praise you for all of these things. Father, our prayer is with that spirit that we now lift this. I know what, Father, I know what song we're about to sing. It's not fair because I already want to cry now. Father, as I think about what song we're about to sing to you, Father, it is my, it is my hope that every single saint in this room that they would fully engage all that they are in the praise and worship of you now in the moments to come, not just the, the words of their lips, but the meditations of their heart, and that you would be glorified, truly glorified in these few minutes to come. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.